everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and we are releasing this podcast on Good Friday. So happy Good Friday to all of our listeners. And if you're listening to this afterwards, happy Easter or happy Easter in retrospect. Hope you had a great weekend. Today, we are doing a reflection on Good Friday, on Holy Saturday, on Easter Sunday, and just pausing here to really reflect on the the power, the importance of these celebrations uh, historically and for today. And then we will pivot uh, next week, beginning a two-week series on sexual ethics. Uh, so you can tune in for that as well. But today we want to just recap. I know we talked about soteriology last week, the doctrine of salvation. And there'll be some intermingling themes with what we're talking about today. But this is such an important celebration, has been for the church for, for two millennia now, that it is worth pausing and doing a meditation on these themes and the the reality of Jesus's death and resurrection and what it means for us. And and just for a little recap, and I know some of this will be repetitive from what we've talked about before, but as we've talked about meta narrative, as we've talked about salvation, what we are celebrating in the resurrection of Jesus this weekend is the, the pinnacle, uh, if you will, of the redemptive narrative of the scriptures. Uh, of course, it's not the consummation, that's at Jesus's return and the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth, but it is the pinnacle of the redemption narrative, not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death, which Drew will cover in depth today. But going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God you know, commands Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the, in the day that they would eat of it, they would surely die. Of course, you know, the story, they rebelled against God's command. They ate of the fruit and it introduced sin and the curse. And those three relationships that God had placed mankind in, the man-God relationship, the man-man relationship, the man-creation relationship, all three were fundamentally broken. Most importantly, of course, that God-man relationship. There was an immediate separation. There was an immediate sense of shame and and that propensity then to hide and to distance themselves from God. And so you have God coming on the scene in the in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, calling out, Where are you? Not that he didn't know where they physically were, but just that this this communion they had shared with God was ruptured. And I want to call attention, and we've mentioned this before as well, but uh, again, the first blood that was shed in the scriptures was shed right there in Genesis 3, uh, towards the end of that chapter. And it's a, you know, simple, uh, a small verse that you could just kind of glance right over. It says that God made skins for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them or covered them. And I think that's a really powerful symbol right there in Genesis 3 of foreshadowing of what Jesus would eventually do for all of humanity. But right there, you have God shedding blood, clothing them with animal skins in this good creation that God had just made. Now he is getting his hands dirty, if you will. Don't need to be graphic here on the podcast, but I grew up hunting. We've skinned animals before. It's an incredibly gory and graphic event. And here, this is the imagery we have of God getting his hands dirty and clothing and covering Adam and Eve. 
And then you have the, the system all throughout the Old Testament of sacrifices and the, the blood archetype all throughout the Old Testament, atoning uh, for sin and, and this initiative on God's part to create a way for mankind to still be with him, to cleanse and atone for sin and to extend mercy where God had said, in the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. He extended mercy, made a way for Adam and Eve to continue on. And of course, there were still ultimate consequences for sin. But that fast forwards all the way to Jesus as the fulfillment of all these prophetic symbols and then literal prophecies throughout the Old Testament. Jesus coming on the scene, fulfilling every last Old Testament prophecy, predicting his own death, betrayed, condemned, tortured, and brutally murdered, nailed to the cross. And the power then of of Jesus's death over sin, having never sinned, and then, of course, being buried for a day and a half or so from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, raising from the dead. And we're just kind of painting this backdrop to say this is the mechanism by which God established in order to be reconciled with humanity, that we who would put our faith in Jesus Christ, who would confess him as Lord, believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, that we would be saved, that there is a, a manner in which humanity can come close to God again that is not by our own striving, not by our own efforts that any man should boast, uh, to reference Paul in Ephesians 2. And, and just to cite one particular passage, if you're looking for a passage to meditate on, to think about, to pray through this weekend uh, as you reflect on Easter, 1 Corinthians 15, especially the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is kind of a treatise on resurrection, if you will. But there was this almost this kind of creedal saying that many scholars believe had taken root in the early church that Paul references beginning in verse 3. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and so on and so forth. And here you have Paul recapping essentially the entire salvation narrative and, and hitting on the major themes, and, and especially the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to many, many people, in fact, hundreds of people. And if you do like to study apologetics and, and think about the reasons for faith, this is the most substantial reason, reason for faith, I believe, outside of, of course, just the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit uh, revealing Jesus to us. But the fact that you know, Paul claimed that hundreds of people had, had visibly seen the resurrected Christ, that could have easily been cross-examined and shown to be errant, but instead it was corroborated throughout early church history. The fact that Jesus did historically, bodily, physically raise from the dead. One other note here is, is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, uh, James. Uh, I think that's an exceptional apologetic as well. Uh, you know, what would it take to convince you that your brother or sister was indeed Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of mankind? And you see James throughout Jesus's life mocking him, his brothers mocking him. And then Jesus appears to James, Paul lists James, and then we see James leading the church in Jerusalem. James, of course, writing the letter, the book of James. And in verse 1, 
calling Jesus his Lord. And so, so much hinges on the resurrection. That's why we're pausing to take an entire episode here to do this reflection. So, Drew, why don't you kind of take us forward from here and look specifically, this is such a big celebration throughout history. What has the church been celebrating when they celebrate Easter? So, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter celebrate the victory of God over two great enemies, sin and death. And I think it's sometimes important to take a pause and see what have we been rescued from here. And we we hit some of these themes last week in our episode on salvation or soteriology. But sin and death as connected, intimately connected as a matter of fact, but twin enemies that are the root, the root cause of every other issue, every other problem that goes on in the world. And and something that will help make sense of the gospel narrative as you read scripture is recognizing that there was a very acute sense uh, amongst first century Judaism and a lot of the initial disciples um, in first century Israel, there's a very acute sense of oppression and the need to be rescued. But what they were looking at was actually a form of political rescue. Not entirely, you know, it could be religious. And there was some debate about what did they mean when they said Messiah? I think there's a a consensus that that a political rescuer whether some type of uh, political figure, whether that was a revolutionary or whether that would be somebody maybe coming more traditionally in the political system, but that would restore Israel. There's others where it could have been a a prophet, kind of like Elijah, that that was certainly going around as well. So there were different ideas of what a Messiah would do, but sites tended to be set on, on some type of temporal political rescue that would restore Israel back. And if you kind of think God, the the whole story is God freed Israel from slavery in the Exodus story and led Israel sovereignly, divinely into a land of promise and allowed them to settle there. And then you have this image of the tabernacle, really the power of God on Sinai that then traveled with Israel in a tent together with them as they traveled in tents and then ended up in a temple as they settled into houses. God, God was living amongst his people in their own land as they had been set free so that they could be devoted to God as his chosen people. I mean, that's that's the story. But by the time of Jesus, for the most part, Israel had been under some form of foreign oppressor for 600 straight years. I just think about how long that is. You know, that's us going back into medieval times. You know, that's how long uh, really where at this point the idea of being a free people was a memory, a distant memory at that. And likewise, the presence of God had left the temple, and you see that portrayed in very vivid account in the prophet Ezekiel, where God's presence no longer lived among his people. And even though they, they had a temple at, at that time, there, there was this understanding that this temple is, is not inhabited with God as was intended, and he's, he, no longer, he no longer dwells amongst us, at least as he used to in the days of old. And so people are looking for something. That's, that's what's in the backdrop. And they're thinking of somebody that's going to come along and restore things back to how they used to be under King David or some other point in time. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and he has his sight set on a different enemy. And Jesus isn't just going back to the Babylonians or the Romans. That's not where he's looking. He's going all the way back to what was mentioned earlier, to Genesis. He's actually looking at the enemy of sin and death. And the power of the Romans, I think we could say, the power of any empire, the power of any broken human system ultimately resides in sin and its consequence of death, which is the fate of all humanity. Paul really dives into this in Romans and in Romans 2 and 3, where he talks about, I'm sorry, Romans 1 and 2, where Romans 1 is all about 
the, the reality of all of humanity living in this condition of death and sin being the condition of us, whether we have the law or not. And for those who have the law, who have an understanding of God, the law is really great at helping us to become aware of what sin is. And it's also great at helping to restrain some of the worst excesses of sin that might destroy society. But fundamentally, the law is incapable of actually taking away our sin. And likewise, even if even if we could somehow live free from willful sin, we still live under the reign of death, and that cannot be escaped either. And so these are the ultimate enemies that enslave humanity. And this is precisely what Jesus came to dealt with. Before I go further, I think it's it's right. Death is a little easier to understand. You know, it's, a, it's the ultimate fate of all of us. Sin um, sometimes can be defined a little differently. And I think a lot of us, we're tempted to think of sin as an action that I have done. And so I, I think of sin and I go back in time and I think of an action for which I'm guilty. And if I've done any one action, I'm therefore guilty. And I, there's probably some truth to that, although I would actually look at this a little differently and say that sin is a condition of the human nature. And, and so it's not just an action. It's not just that I told a lie when I was two. Instead, it goes deeper than that. It's a, it's a corrupting agent that warps the entire way that I live and who I am. And it's a corrupted human nature. It's a sickness within the human soul. And it it goes much deeper than that. And as a result, sin is manifested in action. So I think it's fair to speak of sin as a human condition and sins as actions that arise from the human condition. But what Jesus is dealing with here it is, there is, and I believe there is an element of justification and forgiveness for the actions of my sin, but he's actually going to go a little deeper than that and deal with the very nature that is sin within me. And that delineation has been helpful for me to see what God's really trying to do here is rewire my entire human nature, my entire human condition, and that being the victory that's won. And so we look at that, that, that is some background. Um, we look at that both with sin and with death. Diving into that 1 Corinthians passage, it's interesting that it says that Jesus died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures. And that little line is unique and has been much studied and debated of what what are all the implications of Jesus dying for our sins and why. And you have a lot of different theories out there, whether it's various forms of substitutionary atonement or penal substitution even. You have Christus Victor, where it's Jesus' victory. You have, you know, there's a lot of different ones out there. And then when, he's, when um, Paul is referring, in accordance with the scripture, well, what scriptures are we talking about? Is it the sacrificial system? Is it the suffering servant in Isaiah? You can kind of have a list of all that as well. Much like we talked about last time, I think that the power of the atonement of what Jesus did on the cross is multifaceted. And I think just as we were talking about salvation and there's all these different metaphors, I think that could be said as well of, of the power of what occurred on Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, and then um, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. I think each of those reveal different aspects of the ultimate victory of God that is atoning and standing in our place and justifying us before God, making us right where the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And you see that definitely in Hebrews, but um, other New Testament books as well. Also, you can look at the book of Colossians where it's really a lot of victory imagery, where it's actually a conquest that has been affected on our behalf, where Jesus has conquered through his death. And it was actually in weakness, and by becoming death, Jesus conquered death. And, you know, so you have that imagery as well. And where I think the church can get off over time is where we 
so lock in on one metaphor or one aspect that we neglect the rest. And, and the beauty of what Jesus did for us is huge. It's multifaceted. I think it's certainly atoning. And I think that's a key image that we're given in the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. But it's also victorious. And, you know, it there, there's multiple strands of Scripture. So when I see this phrase, he died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, I have a very broad view of that. I think there's a lot of threads in Scripture that are all pulled together at once in Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And, and I think we could pinpoint any one of them. To me, it's worthy of note that it was during the Passover holiday. So I think that's an image that's important for us. And you actually go back to the Passover story, the death of the firstborn, the blood of the lamb that covers the doorpost, the freedom from slavery by the sheer will of God so that Israel can go and worship. There's a lot of imagery in that one holiday that's significant. Um, I certainly think we can look at the sacrificial system where we see that idea of atonement and justification which justification just means to be made right, where we are, again, made right in the eyes of God. Uh, I I certainly think you can see that as well. Even uh, an image that's maybe a little bit more obscure about I was studying when Jesus was in the temple, and you see this in Mark, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, John, overturning the money changers, the disciples had this little phrase that zeal for his father's house consumed him. And that's referencing a familiar story of zeal. And zeal was when somebody in Israel would rise up and be so disgusted with the idolatry and the sin that they would violently fight against it. And that starts with the story of Phineas in Numbers 25. Um, You also see it in the Maccabean Revolt, which is not in the Protestant Bible, but you can read about it, uh, of just being unwilling to lose our distinct identity as God's people. In all of those stories, somebody reacted in a violent way to fight physically against sinful influence. And I think it's interesting to note Jesus had zeal, but rather than him being the one who wielded the sword, he instead was the one who was willingly killed. And so he exercised zeal, but he became the recipient of it as well. And this beautiful picture of uh, of him restoring, not through killing the guilty, but dying the death of the guilty so that the guilty might go free. You have the story of Barabbas, the violent zealot who walked away, who, who deserved a crucifixion. And you have the innocent man, Jesus, who took it on. You know, so, so many different angles that we could unpack. And I see it all throughout scripture. And uh, and I think they all point to this moment of redemption. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's powerful imagery, Drew. And and I, I think the the cross, Jesus hanging on the cross is a, a point of meditation for every believer that I don't know that we pause and think about frequently enough. Of course, we have the celebration of Good Friday, but Everything that you're saying, I love how you you did that so expansively that according to the scriptures probably means the totality of the the teachings that were leading up to Jesus's death, that there was more than one reason, there was more than one process that was going on there, that that Jesus was undoing sin and the curse in more ways than we can probably fathom. Uh, I don't know that that we reflect on that, that we think deeply enough about that and prayerfully consider Jesus's death often enough to see, again, that the onus, the burden was shifted to God, just as you were saying, that God forcibly removed Israel from, set set Israel free from Egypt by his own agency, by his own doing. And that's what Paul tries to drive home in Ephesians 2, that it was God's initiative towards us that saves us. And you see that zeal, Jesus absorbing everything that he did on the cross, making a way for us by his own power and agency. Yeah, there's this idea going around where people are pushing back on this view of God, of God as this wrathful, 
being who is just so angry about our sin that he's looking to punish somebody and then chose to punish this innocent man, Jesus, who absorbed the punishment of an angry God on our behalf. And so, you know, rightfully, I think if you frame it like that, people have been concerned about that. I I do notice people then drifting to then maybe minimizing the atonement because they're concerned of that image. And I think the whole conversation, I think, actually misses the point, which is that, uh, and I think the point is we need a more clear understanding of the Trinity, that Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not some random person that God found that he wanted to punish. Jesus is Israel's God himself, who out of his own love chose to justify through his own death and bear the penalty on behalf of his own children and those that he loved. And I think when you look at it that way, it actually ties together so deeply into the character and the very nature of God that God did for us what we could not do. And the net result of it is that our sins have been paid for, atoned. We've been made righteous and we've been set free from sins enslaving imagery. What happens, there's this, um, we, we hit it last week, but this little bit more mystical understanding of being in Christ. And to your point, Mick, I think if we could go back into some of the early, you know, into the scripture, this idea of we have been buried with Christ and that in Christ we have actually died. And so he died the death we deserve. And now through our unity with him, we also have died. And in our dying, we have actually died to sin. And that the that result of sin is death, but it was Christ's death that put an end to sin. And to me, that's such a powerful, beautiful portrayal of the love of God is that he would take on what we could not do. It's not a picture of a wrathful God who needs to be appeased. It's a picture of a loving God who is willing to sacrifice. And I think that then becomes the foundation. And and so ultimately, however, you know, however we frame it, and there's always going to be mystery. And But I, I think as well, as we look to the scripture, it's like this portrait that just keeps getting more and more clear and more and more into focus of what actually happened. Yet we can pull back to 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And we could pull in some other passage and know that the net result of that is that we are now justified, made right before God. So make that, that's Good Friday. Give us some thoughts on Holy Saturday. Yeah, this is less talked about or celebrated in the Protestant tradition and in the modern era, but it was a really significant part of the church's celebration of the Easter weekend historically. And the reason is because you got to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, you know, after Good Friday. They had put all of their hope in this person. They had seen him do miracles, walk on water, multiply bread, raise the dead. And even though Jesus was very open and frank about his death and his resurrection, they just missed it. In fact, it's kind of, it's almost comical when you go back and read the gospel accounts, how cryptic Jesus is about so many things, but then about his betrayal and death and resurrection, he's very straightforward and they still missed it. And so they, like Drew was just saying, they had put their hope and put stock in Jesus being a something of a political messiah, something of a redeemer who would deal with the Romans, who would eradicate Roman oppression and restore this Davidic Israel to the glory or Solomonic Israel to the glory it once it once knew. And so here Jesus is betrayed, is tortured before their very eyes, and then dies the most humiliating death possible at that time, you know, affixed to a cross, a Roman instrument of torture and execution between two prisoners. This was for, if my memory serves me right, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified unless they were essentially traitors, if they were treasonous. Uh, So it was reserved for kind of the lowest of the low 
the outcasts, the barbarians, the, the murderers, the rapists, and here Jesus is, is humiliated in that way. And so, you know, the disciples go to bed heartbroken, they wake up, and they have left businesses, they've left families, they've left fields, and here they have now no hope. No hope for freedom from oppression. Their friend, who they had spent uh, some of them years with, was dead again, in a torturous and humiliating fashion. And, and now where do they turn to? And so they are kind of slowly dispersing and heading back to their homes. And, and I think that's an important reflection for the church to connect with that period between crucifixion and resurrection where there was this hopelessness, this deep sense of despair. Because what happened was the disciples missed Jesus's ultimate mission and purpose. And I think the church all too frequently still misses Jesus's ultimate mission and purpose. And I think just a simple reflection on our own lives, you know, just this morning we were dealing with a, a clogged sink and there were some pressures leaving the country today and getting the kids out to school and there's water all over the kitchen floor. And, you know, that's a simple, silly illustration, but it's amazing how, how quickly my hope, my joy can ebb and flow with my circumstances. And, you know, that's a, a light example, but in a more sobering fashion, often with chronic illness or an untimely death or any number of the injustices in the world today, often our hope in Jesus can ebb and flow with those difficulties. And we have to realize, again, that we're in that now and not yet period. We're kind of in the Saturday period, though Jesus has risen from the dead. He has not yet consummated his his resurrection or rather his return. And so we still coexist with sin, with brokenness, with uh, discouragement. And yet we do have the hope of Jesus's resurrection. And so I don't want us to miss, you know, why hasn't Jesus dealt with all the evil in the world? Why hasn't Jesus, uh, he will, that's the promise of that, that he made. And, and again, uh, affirmed through his resurrection that he will return again for his bride one day and right every wrong and wipe away every tear. He's giving space for men and women everywhere to repent while there is this epic, this time to do so. But don't miss Jesus. If you're going through difficulty right now, don't miss the fact that he was raised from the dead. It might be worth reflecting on Holy Saturday here that the disciples felt that despair. They felt that hopelessness and yet Jesus reversed it all the following day. And so maybe that's a good place to round it out, Drew. Why don't you talk a little bit about the Resurrection Sunday, the hope and the joy of the church worldwide. Uh, such great reflections on a Holy Saturday, Mick. And I think that sets up the, the conversation on Resurrection Sunday because to your point, Jesus was very dead. I, I love that the re- resurrection did not take place 20 minutes with his still warm body, but it was after he had been rolled in front of a tomb and laid there fully dead and that is, that is such an important symbol for our faith. But then God raised him from the dead on the third day. At one level, this one, um, if it's hard to talk to the significance of Good Friday, it's even harder on Resurrection Sunday. You know, in that little phrase um, that Christ was raised on the third day out of 1 Corinthians has that same little tagline, in accordance with the scripture. And what are we seeing here? That this was always part of God's divine plan this was always how he was going to restore, to reconcile, to justify, to redeem, and ultimately to recreate the world was, was through the resurrection event. You know, I think it's one of those mysteries that the more we know, the more we realize there's more to it. And I said this last week on salvation. I don't think we could spend enough time meditating 
on what it means that we are saved in those images we've given, nor meditating on what happened on these three days and the significance of them. And I would, I would encourage you, if you think you know, go back to the Word of God and dive deeper because there's more there than you realize. And I would encourage all of us that if these truths are not shaping our lives, then I don't know that we're walking in the fullness of the gospel as God intended. And so we went back to the, the, the enemies, the twin enemies of sin, which in the blood of Jesus on Good Friday was decisively dealt with. Well, now the enemy of death, the last and greatest enemy, this is where death itself is decisively dealt with. And I've covered some of this before, so I'm going to fly through it. Going back to Genesis, we, we see the imagery of a garden. We see God on the first day creating the world, and then that culminates on the sixth day, which in the Jewish calendar was a Friday. And that was the day where God created humanity in his image to bear his witness to the world. We see the result of sin. And then, of course, we've talked about before how how Revelation points back to the garden. And if you read John's resurrection account, read it in light of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's so unbelievably powerful. What we find in all the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. What is that? That's the sixth day. The day of man is the day that the Son of Man died. And it was the day that God breathed life into man is the same day that Jesus breathed his last. And all of that idea of us participating with God, the breath of God that entered, and then God's himself, his breath being breathed out as an end when he actually died on the cross. Um, I, I find that to be so significant. And you think of creation, that the key building blocks of light and life and what happened as Jesus died, darkness covered the land. And that's no accident. The very light of the world that was blown into creation on the first day has now has now left creation. But then as you get to the resurrection, if you go back into John 19, you discover Jesus's body was laid in a garden. And that is such an important, powerful symbol. And he, he is that seed that's been planted back into the garden of God. And scripture is pretty clear. The time of resurrection is right at the beginning of dawn. And historically, that's why we've had these Easter sunrise services. And what, what is the image there? It's that beam of light again being breathed into the world. And when was this? It was on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so if you're tracking the sixth day, man's day, that's when man died and the son of man died. On the seventh day, God rested. And that was the day that Jesus rested in the grave. And then on Sunday, the first day of the week begins a new creation. And the very first thing we see is light at the, at the beginning of a dawn. And Jesus is resurrected in bodily form. He was not just resurrected as an idea or a metaphorical principle in the heart of the disciples. It was not just a God awakening, but it was the very bodily resurrection of the person Jesus. It's interesting. I, every, almost every Easter, I meditate on John 20. The emotion of that passage is just stunning to me. But there, there's so many little details that, that you start to catch. Um, if you notice the creation account, it was Eve who was first tempted, and then she went to go get Adam. And so who was it that saw Jesus? It was Mary. Uh, it was a woman who saw him. And then what she was the one who, rather than going to tempt, she was the one who went to go give witness to the risen Lord. It's like every aspect of this curse was being undone. And then the way that she actually encountered Jesus in his bodily resurrected form was a gardener. And it was, it was the very image we get from creation, from Adam and Eve tending the garden of God. That is how Jesus himself is now presented, the gardener 
back in the restored garden of God where every aspect of sin has been dealt with through his blood and of death has been dealt with through his resurrection. And in that moment, what we're receiving as believers is a foretaste of our future. And we've covered that several times on this podcast, but that's ultimately our hope is that when Mary and later the disciples and that list that Paul gave, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they were seeing the first fruit of all of what we will experience. And someday when Christ returns, all of the dead will be resurrected just like Jesus was. And we will also take on new bodies and we will join with him in this new creation. And so what happened at Easter Sunday was the beginning of a new age, a new creation. And then, of course, that will be fully consummated on the day that Christ returns. But now we live in between those two times. We live in the reality of what happened on Good Friday and Easter where our resurrection is assured, is guaranteed, and we even tap into the life of God. I think every time we see a healing, I think what we're getting a taste of is we're getting a taste of our future bodies, but it's not yet in fullness, but it's a sign. It's a reminder of what our ultimate hope is going to be. And I'll end with this thought is just as Jesus was buried and fully dead, then he was resurrected. I think that's important for us to remember is that there is death still in this world. And we're coming off of a year of tremendous suffering where I'm sure there's many who have actually literally lost loved ones or for sure there's been death in other ways. There is death and it's dead enough to where it lies there dead. And that's what's going to happen to all of us if Christ doesn't return. We will all also one day truly die and go into the grave. Our hope is not that we'll somehow get to escape the grave. Our hope is that we will conquer the grave. And that's the power of Christian resurrection is, yes, we face death, but death does not have the ultimate word. And that's our future. And when that's crystal clear to us, it gives us so much hope, power, and grace to fully live because we know that death in the end does not have mastery. Yeah, I love that imagery, Drew, the the sunrise that I hadn't thought about before, Jesus raising on a Sunday, the first day. And it made me think of this prophecy from Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist in Luke 1. I would love to just read this almost as a benediction. This isn't a church service, but it's certainly worshipful to reflect on on Jesus's death and resurrection. And so just receive this as a benediction today, Luke 1, 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As always, thanks for tuning in and uh, we look forward to connecting with you again on Ideology. 